Woo! Should have been there to see that one. Anyway, I, I guess next I want to introduce uh, Kevin, uh, who's someone that I've pretty much known only through IDAA, but I've come to really admire his commitment and dedication, not just to IDAA, but his own recovery. You know, years ago I used to uh, drive 90 miles every Friday morning to get to a 7.30 AA meeting so I could see my attorney to make sure he didn't forget about my case. After a while, I, I didn't really, I couldn't figure out if it was the fact that I was willing to get up and go or actually go to the meeting, which was doing me the most benefit. Now, Kevin, you're taking this to the damnedest extreme I've ever seen. I mean, a uh, guy comes halfway around the world to come to this meeting. So that tells me that your recovery is a pretty high priority. So I'd like to introduce my friend Kevin. Hello, everybody. My name's Kevin, and I'm an alcoholic. It's um, it's great to be here. I, w- I was listening to the last uh, speaker there, and I was thinking what I always used to think. You know, when I started to get sober, I used to think, shit, my story's not that bad, you know. And I remember going back to my, my, my sponsor and saying, you know, I don't really like going to meetings and telling them what happened to me, because there's really nothing very bad happened to me. And he used to laugh at me, and he said, just go and tell them what happened to you. It's bad enough for you. That'll do. And he's quite right. He's quite right. That's what happened. My story, my story is very different. And uh, I'm not going to bore you with all the details of going through it because it's also very similar. And uh, my story, my first clue I ever got that I maybe wasn't normal. I know today I'm insane because Buns told me this morning. <laughs> but I had a clue anyway. And the first thing I always remember, you know, I appropriate to this program is that when I was leaving school, my final school report said on us, Kevin should do well, provided he comes to terms with certain character defects that he shows. And that was from my headmaster, who I presumed, like everybody else in authority, was an absolute twist. He didn't know any better. He was to be pitied really more than anything else. And I suppose if he felt better saying that, then that was all right. And it wasn't until many, many years later when I met him again that I was able to say, hey, what could you see that I couldn't see? And you know, I, many of you have heard this story, but I, I, when I found it, it was a revelation to me. It's a Joe and Charlie story. And it's about a man that had two horses. And the man's problem was that he couldn't tell the difference between the horses. So he cut the tail in half of one of the horses so that he would know the difference. And as you can imagine, that worked well for a while till the horse's tail grew. And there he was back where he was in the first place. So he came up with another idea and he thought what he would do was to put chalk on the shoes of the horse so that when it walked around he would know which horse was which. And that worked fine too until it rained. And then he was back where he started. And this went on and he went on and he was thinking about it. And eventually one day he wrote to his son and he said, Dear son, I've solved the problem of the horses. The black one is two inches shorter than the white one. And that's like the story of my drinking, because everybody else could see the difference in the horses, but could I see the difference in the horses? No way. And you know, it really helped me because I was in no position at all to solve my problem in my life until I knew what the problem was. And there was a lot of heartache and a lot of grief in my life until I discovered what the problem was. When I, the other thing I have to tell you before I start, that I was born as a younger brother of St. Francis of Assisi. 
He's five years older than me. And that always caused me a problem. But you know, that was like the horses. I couldn't see the problem. But I knew that as I was growing up, that I was never comfortable. I was never really in the right place. Because you see, when I was a boy, if, if there was a race or there was a competition or something and I didn't win, there was always a reason why I didn't win. It was because the other guy got a start, or he was older, or he had better shoes than me. It was never my fault. I should have had a sign on here and, and wore it all the time I was drinking that said, it's not my fault. And that's how I went through my life. And I really didn't know what was wrong with me. In fact, I didn't think there was anything wrong with me at all. But I must have felt there was something wrong with me, because I told everybody there was nothing wrong with me. Now, anybody that's alcoholic will understand that completely. Any F person would find difficulty with that. But I actually didn't enjoy drinking at all. I had to make an effort to learn how to drink. And after I left school and went to university, I set about it with a certain amount of enthusiasm. But I drank like most normal medical dental students, and I just drank till I was sick. And then I went back in and I drank some more. And we went back in and we drank some more and we threw up again. And we were absolutely convinced that we were having a wonderful time, because that's what you did. The only single difference was that I always, always had to take something home. Just in case. You know Justin? Just in case used to live in our house. And just in case was, I needed something later on. And it wouldn't have mattered, you know, how much I had had. I always had to have some more to feel safe. And I was reminded at lunchtime, I was telling Burns and Casey a story of the alcoholic who was wandering along the beach. And as he wandered along, there was a bottle was washed onto the shore and he uncorked the bottle and the genie jumped out. And the genie said, I am the genie of the bottle. You can have any three things you want. And he said, well, that's wonderful. He said, I can do with a bottle of whiskey. Your wish is my command. And the bottle of whiskey appeared, which he duly drank. He drank the bottle of whiskey. And as the, when it got to the end of the whiskey, it magically filled back up again. And he thought, this is great. So he drank that one. And the genie said to him, he said, what would you like for your other two wishes? And he said, I'd like another two of these, please. <laughs> And that, you see, that, that it explains it really, you see. Any alcoholic would understand that. So on I went, and my, my drinking career really, it, it took off a couple of times when I was a dental student. In fact, you, you reminded me when you were talking. We had a dean that was very similar to my headmaster. He was a complete prat as well. And uh, we used to get into trouble at dances or whatever it was. And there would be about 10 or 15 of us that all ran together. But you know, to the best of my knowledge, the only one that was ever summoned after the dance was me. Uh, I was always in trouble and I was always threatened with expulsion and with all sorts of things. But it never actually happened. I could always manage to duck and weave and dive and manage to keep myself out of enough trouble to get, uh, you know, to survive. And I think really I, I managed to qualify despite myself, you know. I, I, I was terribly surprised to hear my, my, to see my name on the list when it was finished. We have this quaint way of telling you you've passed your exams. They put a list up and if your name's not on it, you've failed. And uh, I remember quite often in my earlier years, I used to go up and my name wasn't on it. And I, I thought there was just a type of error, you know. And, um, <laughs> and and eventually when I did qualify, I was just as surprised. I spent a long time waiting for somebody to come and knock on my surgery door and say, we made a mistake. You shouldn't really have passed. It was a type of error. And I used to really be frightened about that. That used to keep me awake at night. And I eventually, when I when I qualified, I thought one of the safest things to do was to join the military because they paid quite well, and you didn't seem to get any trouble, and and they also paid you while you were still a student, and uh, and this kept the wolf from the door. But you know, I ended up with as much money in a term as most students had in a year, and I managed to get through it in a few weeks. 
I always had trouble with money. I could never organise a checkbook. I could never organise. I just never had enough. It was like my alcohol. The more I had, the more I got through. And then I couldn't tell you what I'd done with it. Eventually, I, I, I got married, and we went and lived in Germany. And something else you said, you know, I drank beer when I was in Germany, because the Germans drink beer. My wife used to say to me, why do you come home from work at four o'clock? Everybody else has tea at four o'clock, and you have beer. And I said, because we live in Germany, and the Germans drink beer. Why would I not have beer? And I really believe that. You know, I, I shared last night with a couple of people that I spent longer in Fantasyland than Disney than anywhere else. And it was, you know, it's significant, I suspect. I shall have to speak to my sponsor when I get back. I was happy in Fantasyland. And that's where I spent a lot of time when I was drinking. It got me into trouble often. And it usually got me into financial trouble. I would be summoned as to, at one point I actually managed to spend more in the officer's mess than I earned in a month. And that was very difficult as a dentist on a military salary because we get paid much more than the rest. And I was pulled into the office by the local commanding officer of the infantry unit that I was sharing with, and he said, you know, how do you manage to get into such a mess with the amount of money you earn? And I said, sir, that's none of your goddamn business, and when you're bright enough to earn as much money as me, then you'll find out. This not, did not go down well. This did not go down well with the authorities. And uh, I was summoned to headquarters, and uh, they seemed to be making a terrible fuss out of what I thought was quite a minor thing. To which I said, well, look, if you guys don't like it, I'll resign. And they said, okay. And I was terribly surprised because I was sure they would say, please stay because we think you're a great guy. We, we need people like you. But they didn't. And, you know, it was many years afterwards when I was sober, somebody asked me if I'd ever lost any jobs because I was drinking. And I said, no, I don't think so. And then when I looked back, I thought, yeah, I lost five jobs because I was drinking. Because whenever I get into trouble, uh, it was usually money or motor cars or a mortgage that I couldn't pay, and a house that was being repossessed. Minor, <laughs> minor domestic issues. And uh, whenever one of these came to the surface and there was trouble, I would say to the principal of the practice, listen, if it's going to cause you any embarrassment, I think I, I'll just resign. And they always accepted. And I was always surprised. Because I was sure they would say, please stay, we need somebody like you. And I often say this when I'm talking, the only place I have ever resigned from, and my resignation was refused, was an Alcoholics Anonymous. Because I went to Alcoholics Anonymous and I couldn't believe that these people didn't drink a day at a time and that what they were saying was the truth. And I said, oh shit, I said, I'm out of here. You can take this and stick it. And this lady said, no, you don't have to leave. You can come back anytime you want. And I thought, fuck me. That's all I need, you know. So off I went, you know, on my merry way and I came out of the military and started to work in private practice and I drank my way through my, my uh, gratuity before I left. They kept it, actually. And then sent off on a long course of conning and, and deceiving banks to get enough money to buy a home to put my wife and three young children in. And uh, I managed to get a home, but I didn't have any money to pay the mortgage. And uh, I never had any money at all, really. And eventually they repossessed it. And when we got another home and another mortgage, that was going well until I, for some reason, just didn't pay the mortgage and they repossessed it. And this crazy, crazy um, system went on. I used to pretend I had a job. I used to drive about 30 miles to work and park in a lay-by on the A1 and in, in England and, and buy a quarter bottle of whiskey and drink it and go to sleep till lunchtime and wake it up and go back into the shop and buy another quarter bottle of vodka and drink that and drive home and tell herself what a bad day I'd had. And sometimes I could get through four quarter bottles of whiskey or vodka in a day. And I remember when I went into treatment, they said, do you ever drink a bottle a day? And I said, never, ever. No. <laughs> I've never even bought a bottle in a day, I said. And I, <laughs> but I could buy sometimes five or six of these small bottles on that. I didn't count that, you see. Bun said this morning he never drank 
in his surgery, and I was the same. I never, ever drank in my surgery. I used to go out the back door into the garden and drink there and then come back in the back door. And when people said to me, did you ever drink at work? I said, no. Never drank in my surgery. And I could convince myself, like the man with the horses, you know, that the black one was like the white one. And I, I, I was just off my head. And uh, there's lots of, I don't want to bore you here with, with tales of my drunken behavior. But, you know, one of the things that came to me in treatment when I eventually got there that I wasn't quite the full picnic was in England we have telephone boxes. I don't know if they're the same over here. We have these red telephone boxes with glass bits and, and the door. And uh, when I bought my first supplies in the morning on my way to, to work, I used to go into one of these telephone boxes to make it look respectable. So I used to pick up the telephone and I'd have the bottle in a brown bag like this. And I had a briefcase and I would, because I always went to work smart, I'd have a briefcase holding the door open so that if I threw up, I would throw up outside and that wouldn't embarrass the next person that was coming in. And so there I was perched, you see, with a bag at the door, the telephone up here, and I'm drinking like this out of the, with a brown paper bag around the bottle. And sometimes I'd throw up and have to go and get another one and sometimes I wouldn't. And you know, it wasn't until I was sitting in treatment that it dawned on me that anybody that hides inside a glass container and thinks they're invisible is not quite the full picnic, as I say. <laughs> so any doubt that I had in my mind that I was sane sort of moved on then. But my, my, my way into treatment was via another dentist who had written an article in the journal. And I never used to read the journals at all. The only time I was ever reading the journal was I was looking for a new job, because I had been sacked from the one before. And uh, I, I read this, a letter that this guy had read, had written, and it was his wife had died. And his wife had died of alcoholism. And he was writing this letter to say, if there's anybody out there that's suffering from alcoholism, let drop me a line because I don't, you don't need to die. And I thought this is a very reasonable thing for him to say. Very kind, think, a thoughtful man. I didn't think I was alcoholic, but I thought I'd give him a ring anyway. So I gave him a ring and I had a chat with him. He said, you don't think you're alcoholic? He said, I said, no, not at all. He said, well, I know somebody that is. Maybe you should check out the story with him. And I said, yeah, that's all right. So anyway, eventually this other alcoholic dentist phoned me. And I had never met another alcoholic dentist in my life. I had gone to AA when I was in Scotland, but that was really just under pressure from the family. I had met a priest. Uh, I went to visit this priest because I had heard that he used to be drunk, and he wasn't drunk anymore. And there I was in central Scotland, where the religious tension at the time was probably fractionally less than it is in Northern Ireland, but not much. And I knocked on this guy's door, and I said, Good morning, Father. I said, I believe you used to be drunk all the time, and miss out bits at Mass, and now you're not drunk anymore. So he sort of looked around, and he said, Come in, come in, come in. So I went in, and I eventually I spoke to this guy, and he told me about, I asked him, I said, how does Alcoholics Anonymous work? And he said, just a minute. And he went away and he got his book, gave me his big book. And I said, that's great. I said, Where, what will I do with it? What, what, what will I do with this book? And he said, I'll tell you what to do. He said, read chapter five. That's how it works. That's what he said to me. And what I heard him saying was, you're a clever cookie. You don't have to start at the beginning. You can start at chapter five. <laughs> and I'm thinking... Well, if I'm only at chapter 5, there's an awful lot of pages left here. I might as well keep going the way I am until I get to read the whole book. And that's what I thought, you know. So I put his book away, and that was the end of it. But when I met this dentist, he told me for the first time that I was sick. And I went into treatment. I was delighted to get into treatment because there was all sorts of financial institutions chasing me. And I was delighted to hear that I was sick. Because I was frightened that if they all jumped on me at the same time, I'd go to jail. My biggest enemy at that time was the postman. The postman used to bring me letters and there was gravel outside our house and I could hear the postman at six o'clock in the morning walking along the gravel. And before he put those letters in the door, 
I knew what was in them. And that's what I was frightened of. I didn't need to open the letters to know what was in them. I could imagine what was in them. So I used to take the letters and I used to put them in the briefcase and then I would close the briefcase. And I did this for a long time. And eventually when I was sober and went to the accountant, I had four briefcases because that was my solution. When the briefcase was full, I bought another briefcase. <laughs> so that's how I was dealing with the problems in my life. And off I went to treatment. <coughs> Excuse me. And I'd love to tell you that I spent... Treatment then was really... was was quite interesting in England at the time treatment. I was, it was 1982 I was in treatment for the first time. And uh, it was an old uh, Napoleonic prisoner of war hospital. <laughs> and not much had changed since the Napoleonic was. And uh, we, were, we were sitting in there in this detox ward, and I was feeling like shit, and I was shaking, and I had my dressing gown on, and I was really in bad nick. And a very important thing happened to me. I had three visitors, and the one day, there was a doctor came to see me, a Dr. Martin Kay. And he came in and he said, I'm glad to see you here, because I had, I had gone to one doctor's and dentist meeting and left again. He said, I'm glad to see you here. This could be a very exciting time for you. And I thought, yeah, yeah, yeah. But he had come to see me. When he had been away about a couple of hours, there was another fellow come in. His name was a Dr. Jack Rose. And Jack always dressed in a morning suit. And he always had a carnation in his jacket. And for every day, every day he was sober, he changed that carnation for a fresh one. And he used to could tell you how many days he had been sober. And the third person who came to visit me was the dentist who had helped me to get into treatment. And, you know, it was obvious to me even then that something very important had happened to me. I didn't want to be in that place. I felt as if alcohol had taken any dignity I had left when I was sitting there shaking and sweating and, and, and sharing with guys that had been living under the bridges in London. And two doctors and the dentist had taken trouble to come and visit me. And it just, you know, it, it, it gave me that first glimpse that maybe, just maybe, I could get better. The other thing that happened to me on that treatment day was it, it was Father's Day the next time I was in. And uh, nobody had any visitors that day at all, except me. My wife came and my three children came to see me. And it was a long time afterwards when I read the line in the book that said, living with an alcoholic would turn any woman and child into a neurotic. And that perhaps never in our lifetime we'd be able to make complete amends to them. But we didn't have to. All we had to do was to try. And you know, when I was sitting in that uh, treatment center that day, on my, I had a reflections book. And the name of the treatment center was St. Bernard's. And I had written down the side of it, Father's Day, St. Bernard's. How did they get me here? <laughs> and that was me. There I was again. It's not my fault. The sign was loud and clear. I'd love to tell you I came out of treatment and everything got better, but it didn't. I came out of treatment and about six weeks later things got better and I went back to work. When I got back to work, I, like most dentists, you know, just by coincidence we happened to make a bit of money. We made a bit of money and it was enough to keep me happy, so I treated myself to my lunch. I went to an Italian restaurant to buy some pasta. I don't like pasta, but of course if you're eating pasta, it's essential to drink a bottle of red wine with it. And so that's what I did. Six weeks later, I was just back, just as big a mess as I had ever been in. I didn't know what to do, I didn't know where to go. And I was out one night with my 12-year-old daughter. And she said, Daddy, I don't think you're well again. My wife always used to tell the children I wasn't well. She didn't tell them I was a drunken, arrogant, angry, aggressive little shit. They probably could see that. Um, she told me at times, but there we are. The other sad thing that happened to me was then she went to Al-Anon. I knew that was the beginning of the end then, you know, because one night I came home. And, you know, after the priest gave me the book... I took it home and I left it there till I was bad enough to read it. But one night I went home and she was reading the book. 
And I was very angry that she was reading my book. But things were never the same after she read my book. But there I was, having come out of treatment, treated myself to my lunch and my red wine. And this daughter said to me, she said, Daddy, if you're not well, why don't you go back? And I said, well, I'm very busy. I've got things to do. I've got appointments to keep. I've got patients to see. And she said, Daddy, I said, I'll go back when I've got time. And she said, Daddy, if you're not well, why don't you go back now? And I thought, shit, I'm 38 and she's 12 and she's got more sense than me. I went back to the treatment centre the next day. And I met my counsellor at the door and, and, and he, I said, I'm back. He said, I can see that. I said, how long will I stay? And he said, till you're better. And I said, how will I know when I'm better? And he said, you'll know. And I sat there for a week. And to the best of my knowledge, that's the only treatment I had that week. I sat there and I felt miserable and I felt sorry for myself. And I heard a tape. I can't tell you who was on the tape and I can't tell you what else was on the tape. I can only tell you what I heard on the tape. And what I heard on the tape was that it wasn't enough to want to change and it wasn't enough to need to change. You had to change to experience the change. I went up to see him the next day and I said, I think I'll go home. He said, okay. I think I'm better. He said, I think you might be. I went home and that was on the 11th of November 1983 and it has not been necessary to drink or take a pill since that day. I went back to Alcoholics Anonymous and you'll not at all be surprised to know that they had all changed while I was away. They were pleased to see me and I was pleased to see them. I got myself a sponsor and I started doing my steps. I ended up with the most tremendous gratitude to those three doctors who came to see me that day and I think that's where my loyalty comes from for the doctors and dentists group. They told me very early on, they said, Kevin, go to America, go to IDA and listen to what they've got to say. And I mentioned last night, I couldn't do that. I couldn't do that for a while until 1993 when I came back. And that was one of the first big things, you know, that the theme of this convention is we absolutely insist on enjoying life. And, you know, enjoying life is a thing that doesn't have to be instant. You enjoy, I enjoy things today that have happened before and I can relive them again. You know, enjoying life is like the opposite of my resentments. You know my resentment machine that used to play the same thing over and over and over and over again. And now, you know, I can look at the things that have happened to me since I get sober and I can enjoy them. And I discovered this in my surprise that enjoying life and the things I enjoyed in life very rarely had to do only with me. They had to do with other people. They had to do with this lady that I nearly drove to distraction. They had to do with these three children who apparently have come through this thing relatively unscathed. It has to do with two children who have been born since I got sober. The older of whom spoke at the Al-Anon, at the Alatine uh, breakfast last year. This is the boy that's never seen me drunk. This is the boy that's picked up the principles that, that I learned from you people and at meetings of AA. These are the children that just have absorbed the thing that's in our home. I said last night that, you know, we teach our children what we can teach them. We send them the message. And I was always good at sending them the message, even when I was sometimes drunk. But it was done in an aggressive way, in a demanding way. And I had to learn that these children were people. And I had to let them be people. And having sent them the message... I had to let them sing their own song. 
I had to give them roots to stay if they wanted. And I have to give them wings to fly if they want to. But most important, I have to let them choose. And that was a big thing for me to learn. But today, I can enjoy it. And that's the whole thing. I can see why they picked the theme for this convention. Because it's all about enjoying life. You see, enjoying, I discovered, was nothing physical. It didn't mean having a whole lot of money. It didn't mean being drunk. It didn't mean feeling excessively happy. It meant just having peace of mind. It meant that it was okay for me to be me. It means that I don't have to wear my sign on my head anymore. I can take it off and I can leave it off. I can enjoy and I can share with you things I've enjoyed coming to IDA over the years. It's been the privilege to come. I was sharing with Gavin this morning when I heard the story about the duck that the drug addict had, had written. He wanted to be an eagle. I knew about it. I want to be an eagle. I want to soar and to fly and have big, and I want to be a king of all birds. But you know, I'm really a duck. And I had to learn, it's alright to be a duck. The eagle wouldn't do too well in the pond. But the duck's all right. And I was all right. I had Larry at Minneapolis as I was lying in my bed and I'd had my heart attack and my bypass and I was feeling life was very difficult for me and I was not enjoying life at all. And I heard Larry on the tape and he said he came to see that it was all right to be broken. It was important. I remember in New Jersey, as he described himself, the drunk monk who described how he needed to have a drink when he was struggling. And one of my daughters came up to me afterwards Kirsty, and she said, Daddy, you know, I think now I understand why you had to drink. I came in ahead, Graham, and Graham told me, he said, sobriety is like a country and western tune in reverse. The horse doesn't die, you get the dog back, you get the job back. And you know, all these things that I've learned from people, I take along with me and I take with me on a daily basis and they help me to enjoy life. It's not all happiness. It's not all sadness. But you know, when it all goes into the melting pot and I'm sitting there, it's all right to be me. And I don't need to take anything to change the way I feel. My God has seen me through the most difficult, difficult times in illness, with children, and in my life, in my business life. And whenever there's a crisis, I can hear the voice. The voice in my head that says, It'll be all right. Doesn't say it'll be better tomorrow. Doesn't say. And I say to you, my name is Kevin. I'm an alcoholic. And unless I take steps on a daily basis to deal with both of those things, then I'll drink again. Thank you for listening.